Welcome to All Things Pilates, Season 4. Though we can't know exactly what Joseph Pilates was thinking or feeling towards the end of his life, we do know he wanted the entire world to practice Contrology, and that want has certainly become a reality. Hello everyone, I'm Darian Gold, and here on All Things Pilates, we discuss the man, the method, and how his genius continues to influence and inspire. As many of you may know, there is a side to the Pilates industry that involves lawsuits about intellectual property, copyrights, trademarks, patents, and public domain. I thought it important for all of us to learn about these legal terms because so many of us teach online as well as in person and may not be aware of how to protect ourselves. With us today is attorney Gordon Firemark, known in the podcast world as the podcast lawyer. Gordon has been practicing entertainment law since 1992. His practice covers copyrights, trademarks, business transactions, and corporate matters for clients in media and entertainment. In addition to a busy law practice, he teaches entertainment law at Columbia College Hollywood, intellectual property and media law at the Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising, and contract law at Pepperdine Law School. Hello, Gordon. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me, Darian. It's nice to be here. It's so impressive what you've been doing for the last 30 some odd years. <laughs> you know, you do it step by step as you go incrementally. It doesn't feel so impressive, but uh, when I hear you <laughs> read it back like that, it sounds great. Thank you. <laughs> Gordon, as I mentioned in the opening, there are five terms, intellectual property, copyrights, trademarks, patents, and public domain. Will you please explain how each one operates in the world? And do we have enough time? <laughs> well, I mean, we, I could go on for ages and ages, but I'll, I'll try to keep it, some, you know, summarize it in a way that it makes sense, but keeps it brief. So intellectual property is sort of an umbrella term that refers to kinds of property that are intangible. They're, they're products of the mind rather than physically things that you can hold, although often they are embodied in physical goods and things. So uh, copyrights protect original works of authorship a script, a book, a, a movie, a recording, a, a soundtrack, you know, those kinds of things that that can be a poem, a sculpture, um, that can be fixed in some tangible form. But it's the it's the ability of those things to be copied that makes it necessary to have a, a body of law that protects the ownership, the authorship. And so that's the thing we'll, we'll probably spend most of our time talking about. We'll come back to it. But trademarks are brands, things that like logos and phrases, terms that are um, affixed to goods in commerce that act as sort of a source identifier. So if you think of a shoe with a swoosh on the side, you know what company that comes from, or a box of cookies with a red triangle in the corner, you know what company that comes from. That's the purpose of what trademarks are. And there are certain terms and, and phrases that can be trademarked and, and protected as well. Patents are similar kind of protection that's eligible, that are available for inventions, uh, things like systems and designs and 
inventions that that uh, uh, can be protected for a certain amount of time so that the inventor can reap the rewards of having done the creation. And then eventually it falls into what we call the public domain. Uh, this is true of copyrights as well. The length of time is very different. But once the, the uh, protection that's afforded by the law expires or is uh, given up but for some other reason by, you know, a voluntary act or sometimes failure to renew a copyright or something like that, uh, then it falls into the public domain. And what that means is that it is no longer covered by any protection for the author or inventor or creator that would allow, uh, and, and thus that would allow uh, other people to use that technology, that work, whatever it is, to build on things and create. And that's the whole idea behind intellectual property law is to the, the Constitution says to promote the progress of the useful arts and sciences by preserving to authors and inventors for limited times the exclusive rights to their inventions and works. How is it determined about limited rights? With a limited time. The limited uh, time. Well, it's the, it takes an act of Congress to decide that, literally. Uh, the patent law protection lasts for 20 years from the issuance of the, basically when you apply for the patent, I think is how that works. Don't do much in the patent space. Copyright law, much longer time frame. It lasts for, well, for works that were created prior to 1978, the protection is now 95 years, start to finish. Which is why you hear people talking about the character Mickey Mouse falling into the public domain in 2024, <laughs> two years from now. Uh, because his lifespan has reached its 95th, 93rd year right now. And that's so, it. You can't renew. Right. No renewals. You, and, and for older works, um, prior to 1978, which was the effective date of the new copyright law, uh, there was this more complicated scheme of, of uh, 28 years and then a renewal and then another 28 years. And then when they started working on this new law, they gave additional extensions to it to now round it out to a total of 95 years. Actually, up until uh, 2000, it was uh, life of the author plus 50 years was the duration or 75 years for works created by companies. But that was extended because Disney, among among a lot of other companies, uh, asked Congress to, to act and extend things. So it's jokingly referred to as the Mickey Mouse Life Extension Act. That's cute. So now I'm wondering how these terms might relate in the Pilates world. And I have uh, a couple of examples I would like to share with you. Mm -hmm. uh, the first one, a personal experience, and I wanted to get your take on it. Early in the mm -hmm. pandemic, Pilates studio owners moved to online platforms after closing their physical studio, and, and that's what happened to me as well. And one of my students online during a private lesson without my knowing, recorded her lesson. Then a video clip of that lesson, including my voice, was posted on this student's social media. And I definitely never gave permission. I never even knew people did that. Is it legal if the teacher doesn't give permission? Well, we have a bunch of questions to answer to, to figure this out. The first analysis we have to decide is, is well if you had a some kind of an agreement with that person what did it say was there a contractual promise of confidentiality it's a one-on-one -on -one, uh coaching session so uh, uh you could argue that 
that is inherently sort of a confidential private thing and that she shouldn't, you know, it's just bad faith on her part to have done that. But if we get into the intellectual property question, we have to ask, well, is, do you own something that can be protected? In order to have a copyright, you have to create something that's original and it has to be fixed in some tangible form. So if you, assuming that your selection of, of, parts of the workout routines and and components of things are are original that that selection itself and the choices you've made about what to do next are original and you've written it down made some notes or some kind of notation then maybe yes it's it's entitled to copyright protection and therefore her recording of it and publishing of it would be a violation of your rights as a copyright owner um i don't know enough about pilates to know whether or not what you do as a as an instructor is is original in that sense. I can tell you by reference to another, I'll call it a fitness, uh, another uh, industry is the um, the hot yoga folks. The sequences of of poses and things like that can be protected as uh, copyrightable works. And so I'm going to presume, at least for this discussion, that your routine would be as well. But so this this gets to be perhaps in a gray area because mm-hmm. most of us who teach Joe's work, Joe Pilates' mm-hmm. work, we at least on the more traditional side, we we teach a specific order. Yeah. But when you've been doing it 20, 30, 40 years, you have to make you space exactly. Mm-hmm. So if does the does the teacher who's teaching have to specify all right so this is all this is my work it came out of my brain didn't come out of Joe's brain and we are segueing segueing or stepping off the Joe path yeah. and now I'm now I'm going to give you my work well I don't know that you have to call that out to the attention of your audience but if you you know music is sort of an interesting analogy there are really just eight notes in the musical spectrum and and about eight or 12 different kinds of you know, lengths and rests and things like that. It's the it's the way that you assemble and coordinate those into a single uh, long form work that is what's protectable. So, again, if it was the same sequence that Joe taught, there's nothing new there. In fact, you're copying Joe's work, which might still be considered protected by copyright. But when you make changes by adding something to it or or interrupting and changing the sequence that originality might be something that's entitled to protection. In copyright law, we we sometimes talk about thin protection. And this is a scenario where I would say, yeah, you're, you know, uh, putting in a, <laughs> a, a rest thin. break or a warm down or something like that in between segments. Uh, it may make very good sense, but it may not be that original in the sense of protection. So it's an open question. One other component of your scenario, though, did get my attention. And that is that she recorded it without your permission. This is something we need to think about because some places, some states in the United States have what we call two-party consent law. California being one of them, but some other states have one-party consent where it is, in California, it is illegal to record a confidential private conversation with somebody, whether it's electronic or telephone or, or in person, without that other person's consent. In other arenas, as long as one person in the conversation knows they're being recorded, it's fair game. So 
this sort of relates to the wiretap laws and, and criminal statutes and things as well. But it's something to at least consider is that if that person knew you were in California and that that person was also in California, it might have violated that statute as well. But Actually, a lot depends on where that person was. She It's international. Mm. <laughs> Harder to say. The um, plot thickens. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the truth of it is for folks in Europe, it's even stricter privacy laws than here. Uh, but I don't know what happens in Asia or Australia or other places like that. So it would require some investigation, but there there might be a there there. Mm. My expectation would be that you could probably use the copyright angle to get it taken down off of uh, YouTube or whatever mm. online sites it was, or, or maybe just ask the person to mark it as private or unlisted or something. Well, now so, everyone does it. It was yeah. it was shocking in 2020, but now apparently everyone does it. I have other students that do it and yeah. I don't ever remember them asking me permission, but now yeah. I just feel like I, it's going to happen. Why don't we just, well, you know. Maybe. I mean, this is an area where your ability to govern the terms of your contract with your students has some has a role to play. You can say, you know, either in writing when they sign up for the session or whatever, hey, this is a private session. It's not to be recorded. You can record it for your own personal use, but you can't post it anywhere, something like that. That way, if they want to have, you know, if they want to take your class on Thursday and do it again on Saturday, that, that you know, that may be reasonable within your view, but posting it online is off limits. And you do have the right to set those terms or don't give them the service. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. One more example what if a teacher teaches on Zoom for a studio and that studio records that class? Who owns the recording and does the studio need permission from that teacher to share it because they that studio hired the teacher? Yeah, this is another one that's going to come largely down to the contract between the studio and the teacher and whether it says something about this or not and, and also whether the state's privacy laws allow a, an employer to record their employees' activities and things like that. Many states do allow that. However, the basic rule for copyright purposes is when a, um, a an employee creates a work within the course and scope of what they're doing, it belongs to the employer as what's called a work made for hire. There are some other scenarios where you can do that even outside of an employer relationship. But that, that, so that answers our copyright question. Yes, the, the, the company owns the copyright. But again, the privacy question is, did this person have an expectation that they were being recorded? Did they have an expectation that those recordings would be reused or published in any way? And what's the scope of that permission once that instructor is no longer working for that studio? And what happens if that teacher is teaching all original work? Well, original work created for the employer. So it's work made for hire. So when a when a writer gets hired for by a television studio to write a television series, the studio owns it, not the writer. But when a writer sits down at home on his or her own and writes that screenplay for the next great feature film, until they sell it to a studio, they own it. So it's a question of are you an employee or not at the time the work is created and is the work being created as part of the ordinary course and scope of your job? Do you think teachers should be insisting on some kind of specific contract if they go down this road? You know, I think that it would be very 
wise and reasonable for instructors to try to get some kind of compensation when their stuff is reused. Uh, you know, it could be a royalty. It could be a, um, it sort of depends on the, the business model behind that reuse. If it's just being posted on YouTube, nobody's getting, I mean, maybe someone's making a little money in ad revenue from that, but really there's not a, a payment structure. But if the, if the studio or the course were to plan to use that stuff again by selling access to it, well, no reason the teacher shouldn't get something uh, each time it's resold or, or a percentage of the company's revenues or something like that. And we are seeing that in the, uh, in the situation with some of the, the highest level instructors on, I'm not going to mention the brand name, but it's one of those uh, cycle home cycle systems (laughs) that's available. (laughs) Not the P word. I'm not going to (laughs) say. So it would behoove teachers, especially if they're coming up with their own work that has, that hasn't been seen yet. It would behoove them to either reach out yeah. to someone like you or go to legal zoom i don't know but to have something at least to start any kind of negotiation or conversation with a potential employer yes i i think that bringing in the big guns of lawyers and well legal zoom is <laughs> not a big gun but bringing in the big guns it may be a little premature to do that before you start having the conversation but certainly at the time that you've had the conversation and it's either been agreed or there's an agreement to discuss the terms, then having a lawyer to sort of make sure that the language is in order makes a lot of sense. Unfortunately, many employers and many studios and folks just sort of treat it as this is how we do it, take it or leave it. And then you just got to decide whether the money's worth it. If something is in the public domain, can someone come along and put their name to it as if it's theirs? No. Simple answer. <laughs> no. Uh, I think I know what you're talking about. You you can't uh, you can't claim. You know, um, I wrote Romeo and Juliet. Everybody, first of all, everybody knows you didn't. But you know, and you can't say <laughs> nobody else can use Romeo and Juliet because it's mine. That that would be pulling something out of thin air and claiming ownership. What can happen is somebody might come along and take a particular system or, or methodology uh, that was developed by somebody years and years ago and then turn it into their own brand by giving it a new brand name and, and sort of implementing this model or system or, or whatever. In, in the exercise space in particular, I, I'm not sure whether or not Pilates is a trademark in and of itself. Well, that's that's going to be it one of been. no. That's one of my qu- uh, next questions. Yeah. Yes, it was. But my my point being, if if somebody wanted to come along and take Joe Pilates' methodology and routines and and his, you know, the arc of how things progress in a in a session and start calling it the the fire mark method or something like that, theoretically they could as long as it was in the public domain. If it was protected under trademark law or patent or copyright, then there might be some claims that, well, actually you're passing off someone else's work as your own. And that is not allowed under trademark rules. Yeah, something like that is showing up in the uh, mm. Pilates world. Speaking of patented patents, mm-hmm. if a Pilates teacher invents or adapts a piece of existing Pilates equipment, what is the process 
of trademarking and patenting? And then do they bring in a big gun like you? <laughs> well, you, you don't patent things without using a patent lawyer. I, I don't do patent law myself. It's a very specialized technical area of law. But what I can tell you is that in order to be patentable, the technology or system or design in question has to be novel or unique and non-obvious and not known to the general public. So if if it's modifying a, an existing piece of equipment or an existing machine, it has to be a kind of modification that the ordinary person wouldn't think of to, to make or do. To make it, to render it um, viable for, for a patent, it would have to have... Well, yeah, I mean, I'd have to sort of envision the particulars of the of the invention in question, but let's say you wanted to invent something that was not just a speedometer, but also that measured, I don't know, your, your rate of respiration and perspiration and blood pressure, all these things simultaneously, and add that onto the machine so you're getting a, a more complete readout of what's going on with you physiologically. I guess I could see a scenario where it's possible that that invention would be patentable doesn't mean that the underlying bike itself or the or the other uh, Pilates equipment wouldn't you know be taken off the market but anybody else would not be able to make the same device to attach to the equipment does that make sense yes i guess i was asking cuz that's coming up too <laughs> okay i was asking if someone needs to patent let's say they came up with a, a Pilates inspired piece of equipment but it's definitely not his it didn't come out of Joe's brain. It came out of this other person's sure. brain. Is it is it arduous or is it is it a, a seamless uh, process of getting a patent? Oh, so no, it is not a seamless process. It, it is it is a like I said a very complex technical area that you really have to jump through a lot of hoops, which is why you need the lawyer to to help with that part. Um, it's expensive. Also, it can be very very costly to patent an invention. So hopefully the payoff is worth it. By contrast, copyright protection happens just on the act of authorship. Develop something original, write it down, fix it in some tangible form, it's protected. Trademark, similarly, by adopting and using a distinctive term or, or symbol or something, you acquire trademark rights as you put that product or service into commerce. So enter into interstate commerce here in the US. So, um, creating a brand around something, your version of a thing, maybe it's your version of a respiration measurement device. It doesn't have to be unique and non-obvious. It just has to be your particular one. There's a, a lot of discussion around this going on with these massage guns, you know, the oscillating massage guns, uh, where people, uh, companies are concerned that they're naming it too much, too similarly to someone else's. Or uh, in one case, it's actually the shape and outline of the of the handle of the device. And, uh, you know, those are those are distinguishing marks that are attached to the goods that tell you which company's version of this thing it's coming from. So, yes, you could theoretically create your own brand of whatever kind of gear or system or something like that. Going back to copyright, would yep. you recommend something like, let's say you wrote an original something, would you put it in an envelope, mail it to yourself so it's proof from the yeah. federal government? Well, uh, yeah, that that's sometimes called the poor man's copyright. Mail it to yourself <laughs> in an envelope. The, the problem with that is 
it's possible to mail yourself an empty, unsealed envelope. So I could mail myself an envelope today and a week from now put yesterday's newspaper in it and claim that I wrote, you know, uh, or, or a week <laughs> from now newspaper in it and claim <laughs> okay. that I wrote it a week ahead of time. So it doesn't really have a lot of evidentiary value. Um, there is a registration system for copyrights. It is not a requirement in order to have the protection that you register the work, but uh, in order to bring a lawsuit to in, to inf invoke your legal rights, you do sort of have to have that registration in place. So my advice is if you develop something copyrightable, registering the copyright with the, the Library of Congress, the Copyright Office, it's copyright.gov here in the U.S., gets you access to the courts. And it also, if you do it within three months of the first publication of the work, you can access attorney's fees and statutory damages. You don't have to prove your actual out-of-pocket loss. And then the courts have some discretion to give you anywhere from, you know, a few hundred dollars to tens of thousands mm. of dollars for one infringement. Can you explain the difference between owning an image and the reproduction of that image? Well, I can try. Um, when I make a photograph, I am the author of that photograph by virtue of the fact that I chose the moment in time to capture the way it's lit and composed and all of those kinds of things. And what that means as the author is that I own the copyright. That is, nobody is allowed to make, distribute, display, or make derivatives based on my photograph without my permission. So I can sell a thousand copies of my photograph and merely the fact that someone owns one of those copies that I've sold them does not give them any right other than to have and display that, that individual copy or to sell that individual copy. But to make more copies would be a violation of my rights. So if somebody has a reproduction of a photo, they didn't get a, an original from mm -hmm. the photographer, they, just like right. all of these photos that we see in the Pilates world, because they're a reproduction of a reproduction of a reproduction, so in that case, you don't need the permission of the photographer. Maybe the photographer isn't even alive, but... No, I think you do need the permission of whoever owns the copyright in that image if you're going to be making copies. If you're purchasing a physical copy from somebody who owns one, as long as they aren't making multiples from something they shouldn't. So, so I'm allowed to, let's say it's a poster. Um, if I buy a poster from somebody and put it up on my wall... I'm within my rights to do that. If I buy the poster, make a thousand copies of it and sell them, now I am infringing the copyright in the, in the poster. If I, technically, if I film in the studio where the poster is on display, if it's a significant portion of the design of the scene, it too could be an infringement of copyright. So in the film world, you know, we, we walk into a, a, a scenario and start filming we tell the photographers, the videographers, and the filmmakers to get clearance for everything that's hanging on the wall, every art sculpture in the house, those kinds of things, because sometimes you hear from the owners. This is a specific question about Joe Pilates, and I know you mm -hmm. it's not your world yet. Yeah. <laughs> yet. Don't look like I've ever taken a Pilates if... class. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. <laughs> if Joe did not bequeath his documents, his photos, footage, and inventions to any family member or friend. Is it, are they considered in the public domain? No. Um, the way the law of, of 
wills and trusts and succession works is that if a person dies without a will, then, and without having done any other kind of estate planning, then the property flows according to state law. Whatever state he lived in at the time he died would decide who the heirs are, and they would own everything in the percentages that the law says. Usually it's like um, if there's a spouse and a child, they own equally in shares of everything. If there's multiple children, then it's a third and two thirds to the children, one third to the spouse and two. That's sort of the default, at least that I learned in law school. And, and so the, the law's already got this set up and this, that goes back thousands of years to, you know, who get to be king next was <laughs> the, the kinds of things. So that's called intestate succession when you die without a will. Sometimes people have a will, but the will doesn't mention certain assets or property. Usually the will does have what's called a residuary clause that says anything left over, it gets dealt with this way. So just because the particulars of a particular document or photo or something hasn't been named in the will doesn't mean that it didn't transfer. And so you have to go back and look at the court records and find out who, who succeeded to those items of property. Is it possible in this scenario that there is not a lot of proof there? It's certainly possible. And, and you know, again, not knowing anything about Joe Pilates, I, I understand he was married, so things would have belonged to his wife after he died. Um, well, technically, they oh, were they not. Were, they were shacking okay. up. They so were shacking might up, might Gordon. A, <laughs> yeah. Um, here in California, we have a law that creates a, a specific scenario. We call it palimony and those kinds of things. Uh, it depends, again, where they were. But, New York City. Uh, odds York are if City. he didn't. Okay, I don't, I don't know what the rules are there. <laughs> if uh, if he died without a will and without an heir, then it's possible that those things just, yeah, they, again, I'd have to look at New York law of wills and trust. It might be that they belong to the state, <laughs> you know. Uh, there are lots of different ways to deal with it. Most likely, there's nobody to claim any ownership and therefore nobody to complain about copyright infringement or anything like that. And so it's while it's not technically in the public domain, Effectively, it's in the public domain if there were no heirs. Okay, so that's that's interesting. Do you have any advice for teachers or studio owners who may find themselves in a lawsuit? <laughs> well, if you have insurance, use it. That's what it's there for, is to help you pay for your defense and those kinds of things. I think most people uh, in these kinds of professions ought to have some kind of professional errors and omissions or professional liability coverage. So check with your insurance right away as soon as you learn of a dispute. If not, I think you do have to hire a lawyer. You can't just, I mean, I guess you could try to work it out yourself, but the problem is they've got lawyers and you pick up the phone and you start talking and you say something that later on gets brought in against you at the trial or something like that. So you really need to be careful and thoughtful and uh, um, and get yourself a defense. Uh, that's best I could say. What about, um, I'm just thinking of, do you know SCORE? Not not to deny you work. A SCORE is... Service uh, Corps of Retired uh, Executives, right? And they yeah. offer their services because yeah. they're retired and they still have all this knowledge in their brain. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's something that a lone studio owner who's, you know, not making a gazillion dollars might head that way if he or she was, I don't know, 
there was a lawsuit somewhere pending or something or looming and I mean I can't go into any particulars in in what's happening yeah. so I'm like having to well l- let me just say I think it's it certainly makes sense to get advice from as many responsible sources as you can ultimately if you're being sued if you're named in a lawsuit and you've been served with papers you have to respond to that in a relatively short amount of time usually 30 days sometimes 21 days so you get served with something you call a lawyer you go and get the other advice too but get that appointment with that lawyer so that you can get the papers filed in court to continue to defend your rights otherwise you can lose before you even get started arguing I'd like to jump to you for a moment. I know we are pressed for time. What area of law do you gravitate towards the most? Well, my practice for 30 years has been entertainment, media, and business law for folks in the entertainment and media industries. So copyright is the bread and butter of my work, trademarks, bread and butter. Uh, Lately, I find myself really uh, enjoying working with people in the digital media, uh, YouTubers and podcasters. But uh, my first love is folks in the live theater. I love to help uh, creatives and business people come together and make great art. Um, and that includes film and television as well. So uh, to, to say, I don't, I don't necessarily gravitate to one or the other, but uh, um, one of the great things about my particular business is I get to work in lots of different areas and um, relate but, them. And, yeah. But you as the podcast lawyer, that's your, that's own, right. that's your own thing. Yes, I, 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 when I started podcasting, I, uh, I went looking for the legal resources to tell me where the boundaries were, which I pretty well knew doing entertainment and media law, and I found that there wasn't anything. So I saw that as uh, you might be, have heard of the blue water strategy, where you go where the blue water is, not where the, it's all red with all the other sharks. <laughs> and I so I took an opportunity to write an ebook about podcast law and to create a bunch of resources and. Uh, yeah, I've branded myself as the podcast lawyer, and it's been great. Awesome. Once a week, how how, how do you run your, your podcast? So my podcast is, uh, we've been doing it since 19, uh, 2009, sorry, so 13 years. My co-host and I get together once a month to do a roundup of cases and legal news in the entertainment arena. It's called Entertainment Law Update, and my co-host is a... a music lawyer in the Dallas, Texas area. And um, she and I have a fun banter and enjoy ourselves joking around about what's going on in the law and try to educate, well, I joking, I, we educate our competition. We t- tell other entertainment <laughs> lawyers what's going on in the world. But uh, it's a great way to position oneself as an expert in those kinds of things. So we do that once a month, um, but it takes a month to accumulate the stories and, and build up the, the substance of what we're doing. I also do a weekly live video show on Facebook and YouTube and LinkedIn and everything. Under what name? Um, under the podcast lawyer. It's called Legit Podcast Pro. And I try to answer questions or usually I present one small topic for about 10 or 15 minutes and then answer some questions. And uh, I love that. So, How long have you been doing that? It, it started during the pandemic. I started really doubling down on the live video. And um, I enjoy it. I coming out of a television production background, I, I'm making my own weekly TV show. <laughs> so <laughs> that's great. Um, and then, can anybody because yeah. it's live, you get feedback. Yeah, people comment. So Q, and, you have a Q and yeah, A. Uh, I, most of the time, I'm going fast enough that by the time people get in and start asking questions, 
I'm sort of done wrapping it up for that week, but I'll answer those questions the following week. You're very busy because you're also at Pepperdine. You're at the fashion. Well, I'm not doing all the teaching at the same places all the time, but, uh, but yeah, I've got at least a couple of classes each week that I teach and uh, of course the clients to help too. So, Well, Gordon, I want to thank you again for your time today. I hope even though we were sort of general, I hope that at least we uh, gave people some new ideas to think about in terms of protecting themselves, whether they're teaching on Zoom or they have their physical space. Well, I sure hope so. And, and um, you know, if there are questions that have been unanswered, I'm, I'm happy to field a phone call here and there or an email. So reach What's out to me. What's your website? Me... What is your website? Firemark.com is the website for the law practice. And there's a contact form on there or, um, yeah, that works. Or you can find me at the podcast lawyer as well. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you, Gordon. Thank you. All Things Pilates is produced, edited, and hosted by me, Darian Gold. Mastered audio mix by Fabian Romero. Theme music, Soul Blues Piano Shuffle by Boom Zoom. Joe truly believed that his method created a special synergistic fusion of the body, mind, and spirit as each one invigorates the other. The body develops a balance of strength and flexibility, while the mind adjusts to focused and intentional movement, thus enabling the spirit a chance to experience happiness and a sense of freedom. Just imagine what our world would be like if Joe's philosophy was embraced by all people. Do you think it would lead to a healthier and more compassionate world? One not driven by greed, power, or jealousy, but instead by a sense of protecting and respecting all living things. As always, I remain in awe of Joe's work, and I look forward to being with you in a couple of weeks for another episode of All Things Pilates.